1: Dripping down science. The Naked Scientists.
2: Hello, it's Sunday, the 5th of February, 2012. Welcome to the Naked Scientists. I'm Ben Valsler, and I'm joined this week by Sarah Castor Perry. Hello. This week we are overindulging in the science of obesity. We'll be finding out how our experiences of food when we're very young can influence our eating habits later in life and how eating low-calorie alternatives to sugar and fat may actually be making us fatter.
3: In the news, we'll hear how regions of the brain can catch Alzheimer's from other regions, how a new technique can make microscopes more sensitive than ever before, and why one Australian ecologist thinks elephants could stop
2: bushfires. So if you have any questions or comments for us, then here's how to get in touch. Tweet at Naked Scientists right on our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Or you can drop us an email. Our email address is chris at Scientists.com. The Naked Scientist
1: podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.co.uk.
3: Now, the eating habits we develop early in life can be very hard to change, so it's no wonder that people can struggle to maintain a diet and find it very hard to shift weight that they've already gained. Marion Hetherington is Professor of Biopsychology at the University of Leeds, where she works on understanding appetite and eating behaviour. So Marion, what are the factors that we think influence how we behave towards
4: food? Well, there's um, some evidence to suggest that um, influences on food intake actually occur very early on in life. In fact, in utero experiences seem to be really interesting and really important. There's some very elegant data from Julie Manella, who's at the Monell Chemical Census Centre in Philadelphia, and she has shown that the fetus is uh, exposed to flavors from the maternal diet. So right from the very beginning of life, there's an experience of flavor, an experience of odors, and that these can have an important effect on later food intake. So, of course, also there's the environment that the maternal diet brings. There's the environment supplied by toxins in the environment. For example, if the mother is smoking, this will influence the child's growth, but also it will therefore entrain appetite. And then, of course, whenever the baby is born, the decision to breastfeed or bottle feed with formula, this will have an impact on whether the child is able to accept lots of different flavours. So, for example, breastfed babies tend to be very good at trying new flavours and new tastes and new foods. And uh, formula-fed babies tend to be a little bit more resistant to trying new foods. So the environment um, in utero is important. The environment that you provide postnatally is important. And of course, on top of all of that is the genetic inheritance that you get from each of your parents. We know that food intake can be driven by um, genotype.
3: And our experiences early in life, so do we learn our eating behaviours from the sort of foods our parents provide and also the way that they behave around food as well?
4: The infant is born uh, highly adapted to accommodate a milk-based diet, so they're very good at accommodating breast milk. After the first six months, they have to then start acquiring a liking for new foods And they have to do that through learning. However, they're equipped to like sweetness right from uh, birth. So there's a beautiful study by Jakob Steiner in the 1970s and he exposed newborn babies before they'd been given any breast milk or any colostrum, any, any type of feeding. He exposed them to distilled water or to citric acid in water, quinine sulfate in water and to sucrose in solution and he found that sucrose in solution was uh, produced a, a positive affective response. So newborn babies are positively affected by sucrose whereas with bitter, the response of the infants was to gape and to let the fluid drop out of the of the mouth. So with bitter tastes we have to acquire them through experience and through learning but sugar you don't have to learn to like because you like it right from the very beginning. So when parents are offering different foods to their children they have to bear in mind perhaps that um, sweetness is something that they don't have to expose them to a lot because they already like it. And it's a very powerful food stimulus whereas with something bitter like vegetables they have to sort of be quite persistent and quite positive positive the optimal number of times that you need to offer novel food like a vegetable is about eight to ten times. But on average in the UK, mothers tend to offer vegetables about two or three times before they decide, well, my baby doesn't like this. But actually, if the optimal amount of time is eight to ten times, they perhaps have missed that opportunity to um, encourage the child to uh, accept these novel foods.
3: And is there kind of a window of opportunity to get children interested in eating vegetables?
4: Yeah, there's some really nice work by Gillian Harris at the University of Birmingham, and she has suggested that there are sensitive periods in early infancy. And this suggests that, for example, there are really good times to introduce texture, there are good times to introduce flavour. And very early on in life, infants um, around about six months are very accepting of lots of different fruits and vegetables and flavours. And textures are particularly good to start to bring in just after about six months. And there's data from the longitudinal study based in Bristol and Avon area, ALSPAC data, suggesting that if you don't introduce lumpy foods by nine months of age, then children can be quite fussy later on in life. So these crucial periods, these sensitive periods, suggest that parents do have a window of opportunity to offer different flavours and different foods. And if those chances are missed, then it's actually quite difficult to get children to try new foods and also to like new foods. and we've done research with um, school-age children, and it's really difficult because um, once they get to school, they're already five. They've got five years of experience, and they already are quite resistant to trying, particularly foods that they consider to be novel and different. And you know, we get children <laughs> telling us that foods are slimy, like spinach and that kind of thing. So it is really tough. It's not impossible, but it's harder when they're older, and much better if you try to introduce these foods early on.
3: If someone wasn't perhaps exposed to these things as a child and they are now not very keen on eating healthy food, is there any way to kind of relearn the behaviour of liking this kind of thing?
4: Well I think the key to that is being persistent and there's some really nice data from the Food Dudes program which was started in Bangor by Fergus Lowe and his colleagues and basically they had children who really disliked vegetables that they started to um, introduce vegetables to using stickers and using rewards and using praise and these kinds of efforts showed that actually children can learn to like foods like vegetables like raw red pepper and um, celery and all of these different things but this is with um, social reward and and there's also data from Jane Wardle's um, lab in UCL showing exactly the same thing, that if you give social praise to children and if you give tangible rewards like stickers, the children appreciate the reward and they will eat the food more and it's actually quite a durable effect. So several weeks later if you go back and and test the children on their liking for these new vegetables, they they will like them again. So it does seem like it's never too late to learn but it's much harder when they're a bit old And that you have to use all these behavioural strategies, such as tangible rewards and social praise and modelling. And certainly if parents are modelling vegetable intake and healthy eating from the very earliest stages of life, including the maternal diet in utero, for example, then that will set up children best for healthy eating later in life. But then, you know, all of that gets turned on its head when you talk about teenagers <laughs> because they eat very differently again. But they resume, it seems, um, their previous eating habits um, later in life. So if they've been set up with good, healthy eating habits early on in life, it's easier to resu- resume those later in life.
3: That's great. Thanks, Marian. That's Professor Marion Hetherington from the University of Leeds.
2: If we struggle to change the way that we eat, then one solution may be to exchange the foods that we rely on for lower-calorie alternatives, using sweeteners instead of sugar, or low-fat versions that taste almost as good as the full-fat original. But could this sort of diet be fooling our brain into thinking that rich, sweet, fatty foods actually don't contain many calories? Professor Susie Swithers of Purdue University believes that this may be the case. Susie, what led you down this avenue of research? Why did you think this might be the case?
5: Well, we have lots of evidence that, uh, as Marion talked about, that you can learn about the consequences of, of eating different foods. So if that's true, that kind of learning could affect not only preferences, what you decide to eat, but learning about what the consequences are of eating foods. And we know that we typically finish eating long before we could have absorbed or digested all of the calories in a meal. So we're actually making decisions about when to stop eating um, in anticipation of what's going to happen. So we thought that that kind of experience with food and things like the caloric consequences of eating foods could be an important way to determine things like meal size. And if that's true, then giving experiences where the taste of food, like a sweet taste, is sometimes followed by a lot of calories and sometimes followed by not very many calories that that could become problematic because then instead of learning that sweet taste always predicts a lot of calories what gets learned is sometimes it predicts calories and sometimes it doesn't predict calories and that may take away a signal and that could make things harder and we know that the availability and consumption of foods that are produced um, with these caloric or non-caloric sweeteners has really grown over the last 30, 40 years. At the same time that um, both the population in the U.S. and now globally, the ability to regulate body weight in a healthy range has increased. So there seemed to be this relationship between the availability and use of these products and an increase in the inability to regulate body weight. So that's what got us interested is, could it be the case that that these products might actually be interfering with a particular kind of learning?
2: How does the body actually count calories? How does it know and and how does it make that link with, I tasted this flavour, say, half an hour ago or even an hour ago, and now I have the following amount of sugar or whatever it may be, protein floating around my bloodstream?
5: We really don't know the answer to that. Um, There are lots of potential ways that that could happen. Um, There is some evidence, for example, that in humans using human imaging, uh, functional imaging data, there's evidence that the brain can tell the difference between a caloric and a non-caloric sweetener. Um, There's evidence that we have neurons in our brain that are designed to tell us about whether um, glucose, a a particular, a simple sugar, is being utilized. So um, that may be one possibility. There are other places in the body that appear to be sensitive to changes in the utilization or availability of of energy, Um, the liver, for example. There are also a whole host of hormones that are released in the digestive tract when real sugars actually show up that don't appear to be released when um, non-caloric sweeteners are involved. And um, that may be another way we can differentiate between things that deliver calories and those that don't. But we really don't know the answer to what are we tracking.
2: So there's obviously lots and lots of different potential mechanisms that we need to look at. What are you actually doing to explore this link?
5: Well, what we're doing is we're using a a simplified model. So one of the challenges to answering these questions in humans is that um, humans have all kinds of experiences with a variety of foods before they show up into a laboratory. And it's very difficult to understand and and control what sorts of experiences they've had. Um, So we actually use an animal model because we have much better control of what they've been exposed to. And we're trying to use principles that we know about Learning in other contexts to understand whether learning is critical and if we can apply principles that we understand from learning to tweak the system and figure out if there are ways to undo any potential negative consequences. So What we typically do is we give our animals experience with diets that are sweet tasting, um, and one group gets a diet that's sweet tasting, and that always delivers extra calories. The other group gets diets that are um, still sweet tasting, but they don't include extra calories. And then we look at the consequences of those diets on things like food intake, body weight, adiposity, how fat they are, and um, we're also starting now to try to look at whether those kinds of experiences affect hormone release um, and uh, other sorts of metabolic processes.
2: So the rats who have been exposed to these low calorie alternatives, when they are then offered a a full sugary drink, how do they react? Do they eat or drink just as much as the other rats or do they eat or drink more? And does that then translate into a weight gain?
5: Right. So if we take animals that have um, had experience with no calorie sweetener and then give them access to foods that have lots of calories in them, um, they overeat um, as long as those calories are sweet. And in fact, if we do this chronically, then the animals overeat enough to gain extra weight. We also have some evidence that they um, energetic or metabolic responses to sweet tasting foods are altered. They don't seem to produce the same um, increases in body temperature in response to sweet tasting caloric diets. So um, our interpretation of that is that they've lost the ability to predict that in fact calories are going to arrive and therefore they seem to be erring on the side of overconsuming and reducing energy expenditure in case energy is not actually delivered.
2: So you are seeing both physiological and behavioral responses.
5: That's correct.
2: Do you think that translates well into people? Obviously, we know that different species experience flavors in a different way. Are rats particularly good because we think they have the same sort of flavor profile as humans?
5: We certainly know that they respond to sweet tastes in a way that's um, similar in some ways to what humans do. So they show strong preferences for sweet tastes, and as Marion pointed out with human infants, um, infant rats show sweet preferences for sweet tastes from very early in life. So we believe that that aspect is similar. We also think that this is a very basic learning process. This is the kind of learning that Pavlov started studying um, almost 100 years ago, so it's, it's a fundamental and we think really elementary form of learning. So, and we certainly know that humans can show Pavlovian learning about flavors um, in a very similar way. Um, most people are probably familiar with this in the context of not learning pleasant associations with food, but learning unpleasant ones. Um, I've heard stories of people, for example, who've um, consumed. Um, far too much tequila on one occasion, felt ill afterwards, and uh, avoid tequila for a very long time. That's a, a similar sort of process. They've learned that tequila produces a negative consequence, and they avoid it. Um, so we, we think that these kinds of processes are likely to happen in people. But of course, it's a much more difficult question to ask in people.
2: Well, I think that's a very valuable lesson for us all to learn. Thank you very much, Susie. That's Professor Susie Swithers. She's from Purdue University. Distilling the
1: best science. The Naked Scientists.
2: This is The Naked Scientist with me, Ben Valsler, and with Sarah Caster perry Let's take a look at what's been hitting the headlines in science this week. Sarah, what have you got for us?
3: Well, I've got a story uh, about how scientists at Columbia University in New York have uh, figured out how one of the key proteins involved in Alzheimer's disease spreads through the brain. Now, Alzheimer's disease is a degenerative condition of the brain caused when specific proteins in the nerve cells known as beta amyloid and tau proteins stop performing their proper roles in the nerve cells and instead clump into beta amyloid plaques or tau protein tangles. Now, the tangles formed by the tau proteins were what the researchers at Columbia focused on. And post-mortem studies of human patients with Alzheimer's disease had suggested that an area of the brain just behind the ears known as the entorhinal cortex might be the starting point for the tauopathy, that's the degeneration caused by the abnormal tau proteins tangling up where it started. So the researchers set out to engineer mice that would produce the abnormal human tau proteins in their entorhinal cortex so that they could follow the progress of the disease. They stained sections of the brains of these mice at different ages to look at where the tau proteins were and whether they were normal or abnormal. And their results backed up the autopsy studies done in humans. It does appear that the tau proteins spread out from the entorhinal cortex rather than it being a case of abnormal tau developing independently in separate areas of the brain. One of the authors of the study, Karen Duff, believes that there are several take-home messages from their study published in PLOS One, one of which is that we now have this reliable mouse model that can be used to study the disease further. And another is the sort of rather unusual discovery about the movement of the tau proteins themselves. The way that we
6: looked at these mice, by the places we chose to look, we were able to say that the tau has actually left one cell and moved to another cell. And that's a very radical piece of biology. It's suggestive of something like prion disease, uh, you know, mad cow disease, where you get a sort of transmission of the abnormal protein through the brain.
3: When this abnormal tau spreads through the brain, it stimulates perfectly normal tau proteins in other cells to switch to being abnormal and start to tangle up. Now, Karen was keen to stress that although these proteins move through the brain in this way, Alzheimer's isn't catching, i.e. you can't catch it from someone else. And although Karen doesn't know exactly how these tangles move through the brain, the final take-home message of the study was that it could point the way towards new therapies the earliest stages of
6: Alzheimer's disease, when those tangles are located in that entominal cortex region, when tau is seen there, patients tend to not be demented. So it's sort of like a very, the earliest stage of the disease before you actually get overt dementia. So the idea would be that if we can actually identify the disease at that stage and, and start giving some therapies based on this, we might be able to just trap the disease at that earlier stage and prevent people getting worse and demented. There's a couple of approaches that could be used, um, but probably the the, the sort of most targeted approach would be something called immunotherapy, um, where you use antibodies to basically latch onto the specific protein you're interested in removing, and it it obviously removes it via cellular clearance mechanisms. And, you know, you can develop those antibodies to tau or an abnormal form of the tau, and perhaps it will be able to catch the uh, tau as it's outside of the cell and before it gets into the next cell, so you can sort of trap it in the extracellular space.
3: And the use of the immunotherapy that Karen mentioned is already being tested, so it represents a positive step forward towards treating Alzheimer's.
2: Thank you very much. That's fascinating stuff. And I'm actually going to stick with the brain, but I'm sort of coming from a physics perspective instead of a medicine perspective. And that's that a clever super-resolution microscope has allowed researchers to watch changes in a single neuron in the brain of a live mouse. The exceptional level of detail even showed tiny protrusions called dendritic spines moving and changing shape. Now, the best way to learn about cells is to observe them in context in a living animal. So to do this obviously requires a very high-resolution microscope. But even the best optical microscopes, ones that we look at with our eyes that use visible light, uh, they cannot discern features smaller than around two to 300 nanometers. That's half the wavelength of visible light. To go further and see smaller features, you need to use an electron microscope. But for that, the materials that you're looking at need to be prepared by freezing or by staining or by coating in gold or something like that. And so you can't use it with living tissue in vivo. Sebastian Burning and his colleagues at the Max Planck Institute for Biophysical Chemistry got around this optical limit by developing a type of stimulated emission depletion or STED microscopy. Now this relies on the cells containing a fluorescent dye that can be excited by absorbing certain frequencies of light but also de-excited by using other frequencies so you can sort of switch them on or off. Now, by using lasers of different frequencies and varying the light intensity across a sample, these types of microscopes are able to only excite a tiny, tiny portion of the field of view, and that effectively increases the sensitivity from a minimum of 200 nanometers down to less than 70 nanometers across. Burning and colleagues then pointed their special microscope at the brains of mice genetically engineered to express something called enhanced yellow fluorescent protein, or EYFP, in their neurons. They employed a glass window in the skull so that they were able to observe live, healthy neurons in situ, actually inside the brain. And by taking images every few minutes, they were able to see dendritic spines moving and changing shape. Now, these are small processes that sort of stick out of neurons and they're involved in receiving signals from other cells. So understanding those could help us to get to grips with how the brain grows, how it develops and how it changes over time. Fascinating work published in the journal Science this week. Well, since
3: first humans first set foot in Australia, so we're changing tack a bit now, We first set foot in Australia 50,000 years ago and we've pretty much spelled disaster for the continent since then. Uh, The first settlers wiped out the continent's megafauna, including species of giant kangaroo, and the early English colonists introduced foxes, cats, camels, rodents, rabbits and even poisonous cane toads and rampant African grasses, all of which have had a devastating effect on the ecology of the country and have driven many of the native species to extinction. So when an Australian professor of ecology published a paper suggesting that the answer might actually be to accept that we're never going to return Australia to how it once was and to introduce even more non-native species including elephants to at least stabilise the status quo it was bound to be controversial. Chris Smith spoke to the author of that paper the University of Tasmania's David Bowman.
7: I've recently published a paper in, in Nature which is very controversial uh, opinion piece about the environmental management challenges in Australia associated with uncontrolled fires, feral animals and how they've interacted with the unusual biogeography of the Australian continent. We've sort of started a cake mix and we're mixing up all of these ingredients. And do do we try to actually make this cake rise and work as a cake or do we just leave it as some sort of weird slurry? Because all of the introductions which have been made and the changes to fire regimes have all been effectively accidental. So we already have a very mixed up ecology and the possibility of returning our ecology to anything like Captain Cook would have seen Is an impossible dream given the record extinction rates which have occurred in Australia so we're in a real predicament and I think that the lesson is that humans have to manage nature now we're in the Anthropocene we can't just assume that natural systems are going to be self-righting if we've really hammered the natural systems with quite dramatic stresses and introductions and it's very controversial thinking. But I've been living with these problems for 30 years, and it was about time somebody said something, I thought.
8: So what you would argue is that in the past, these introductions and these things have been either mistakes or ill-conceived, but actually if we use our brains now and start making changes which are based on science and clear evidence, then we could actually work with the problem we've got to help to resolve it and, and arrive at a better outcome than if we just let things go and try and conserve the status quo because the status quo is an unstable one.
7: Yeah, really well said. I think that's the key point. We've moved on and we've obviously, as ecologists, we have much greater understanding of the need for stabilising food webs and the impact of what what are called trophic cascades when you disrupt food chains and how that can actually result in dramatic landscape Um, scale changes all of this thinking is sort of is really ripe I think to trialing things because what we should be striving to do in Australia is you know forget about the extermination paradigm and return Australia to its sort of 1788 you know Captain Cook status and more manage impacts and reduce the the impacts of these what are called threatening processes and and, and through that, with that human engagement and possibly using uh, some animals as ecological machines to achieve certain outcomes, we can basically steer or stabilise our systems way better than if we just just let nature take its course.
8: How has this gone down with the Australian public? Because if you talk to people in Australia, they have been very heavily educated about the impact that introductions and feral animals have had on Australian ecology. And for an Australian ecologist to then turn around and say, we need actually to do this more, they must have quite a strong reaction to that, don't they?
7: Yeah, it's very interesting. Amongst my colleagues, I've been very pleasantly and warmly surprised at You know, elephant's crazy idea, but wow, isn't it great that people are putting all of the options on the table and stirring up this debate? So a lot of support amongst the media. It's sort of a little bit polarised between people who just absurd, joke, laugh, or, yeah, that's a big idea. How do we control some things which are uncontrolled if our plan A approaches aren't working? Because we're about to run into these problems and I think that the way to advance this is that you have lots of debate and ideas and some trials so we can start being a lot more adaptive because we haven't even talked about climate change which is is another layer on top of this horrible complex mess we're in.
8: So how would you do this in a safe way so we don't see the cane toad problem all over again?
7: Right, well one thing which is really important to bear in mind is that there's a global dimension here and I got a a fascinating email from uh, a game manager in Namibia pointing out, when you project at the hundred to thousand year perspective on Africa, it's very difficult to see a future for a lot of animals, just the sheer environmental changes driven by people pressure. Here we've got a lower population density in Australia, we could have game parks. And, you know, a lot of Australians, that's repugnant, but a cattle farm is okay. But how would we do it? Of course, we'd have to trial things and we'd have to invest money. I would like to see somebody work through the calculation of saying, well, let's look at all of the available options and a few crazy options to control this out-of-control grass. Let's look at it all and let's cost them with the knowledge we've got available and what new knowledge would we need, you know, and start... A genuine engagement because at the moment all that's happening is that people are saying this is a very bad weed but in a, in a holistic sense nobody's doing anything. I would call that an out of control situation and you know I'm certain that there are solutions to stabilise this but I'm not quite certain how to do it.
3: That was Professor David Bowman from the University of Tasmania speaking to Chris Smith.
7: A little bit
2: more news for this week, and actually news that fits in with the theme from our show. If you're on a diet, it seems that the best thing to do is to dine with slow eaters, because our eating behaviour changes to match that of the company that we keep due to a subconscious mimicry response that causes us to match our dining partners bite for bite. It's been known for a while that the company we keep can influence our behaviour at the dinner table. People do eat more when others eat more and less when others limit their intake. And now researchers in Canada and the Netherlands think that behavioural mimicry might be the reason. Writing in the journal PLOS One, Roel Hermans from the Radboud University at Nijmegen in the Netherlands disguised his lab as a restaurant and set up a hidden camera to observe eating habits. They then got 70 pairs of young women who'd not met before the study and invited them to share a brief dinner lasting around 20 minutes. The researchers then counted every single bite that the women took. There were 3,888 bites in total and they recorded when they took those bites in order to determine how many were mimicked bites compared with non-mimicked bites. Now they defined a mimicked bite as one that takes place within five seconds of the other diner taking a bite. The results showed that volunteers were significantly more likely to take a mimicked bite than to take a bite outside that five-second window, and this suggests that the subconscious mimicry was playing a major role in the decision of whether or not to take each bite. Previous studies in behavioural mimicry have put forward a a possible brain basis for this behaviour, in which perceiving an action influences the activation of a group of nerves known as mirror neurons, and in this case it would be mirror neurons in the motor system that would control for the motions required to take a bite. And that then means that the person perceiving that action is more likely to mimic that action because of the increased activity in these particular nerves. It is also possible that in this particular case, the diners were just monitoring each other's actions in order to maintain a similar eating pattern, perhaps to keep the conversation flowing. And as the meal went on, the amount of mimicry actually reduced. So the researchers split the 20-minute dining session into two blocks of 10 and found that the women were more than three times more likely to mimic in the first half of the meal than in the second. Now, because they were strangers when they arrived, the researchers think this is a getting-to-know-you period where the mimicry is enhanced. Understanding the behaviours that influence our food intake can help to people to take more control over their diet and be more mindful of the factors that actually alter how much we choose to eat. But this research can also help to find ways to curb the social influence of more damaging behaviours, such as smoking and drinking alcohol. So it sounds like a bit of fun, but actually there's a serious message in there.
3: Well, now with a look at what else is making scientific headlines this week, including a brain scanner that could eavesdrop on the conversations in your head, here's Mira Senthalingam
9: with our Naked Scientist Newsflash. The conversations we hear, and even the ones we have in our own head, have been decoded by scientists at the University of California, Berkeley. Activity in the auditory region of the brain called the superior temporal gyrus was recorded by implanting grids of more than 30 electrodes in 15 volunteers as they listened to various words and sentences. The researchers, led by Brian Paisley, could then use the observed patterns of brain activity to predict what the volunteers had heard.
6: Different brain sites were representing different frequencies and we could use that understanding of the relationship between the sound frequencies and the brain activity to try to predict what the sound was that the person was listening to. One potential application is, is this perception process similar to internally verbalizing or imagining speech? Could it be applied to development of different neuroprosthetic devices for communication, for example, in patients who are severely disabled or severe paralysis that have no other means of communication.
9: Caldera eruptions could be predicted many years in advance by regularly monitoring the composition of magma found below. Calderas are one of the largest types of volcanoes known. They can remain dormant for hundreds of thousands of years but have the potential to become active, releasing so much magma in the process that the surface of the earth caves in. By analysing samples of pumice from Santorini in Greece, providing records of magma activity in the build-up to Santorini's eruption in the late 1600s, Tim Druitt from Blaise Pascal University discovered the presence of rock crystals that only form in the decades leading up to an eruption.
7: There was this long period of dormancy before, many thousands of years, and yet suddenly something happens to form all these crystals. The processes that were priming this volcano for this big eruption actually occurred on a very short timescale, and it really would be sensible to monitor these better to improve our chances of picking up the reawakening of these, uh, these systems.
9: Honey could hold the key to keeping wound infections at bay. Wound infections can often be hard to treat because bacteria form a defensive barrier known as a biofilm, which can impede the ability of antibiotics to access the affected area. Now a team at the University of Cardiff, led by Sarah Maddox, have shown in a culture dish that medical-grade manuka honey can dismantle these biofilms, making wounds caused by common bacteria like Streptococcus pyogenes easier to treat.
6: If you apply honey whilst you're growing the biofilms, you get a statistically significant reduction in the amount of biofilm that grows, which suggests that it would be a useful prophylactic treatment. But we also found that if we grew the biofilms for 24 hours and then treated them for two hours with the Manuka honey, we could um, get a, a total reduction in the biofilm biomass of about 85%.
9: And finally a massage could speed up muscle repair and recovery after injury. Whilst massages have long been used in physical rehabilitation, the mechanisms behind their beneficial effects were unknown. Now, performing massage therapy on male volunteers after heavy exercise and analysing muscle biopsies, Mark Tornopolsky and colleagues from McMaster University found that just 10 minutes of massage resulted in reduced inflammation and increased production of structures called mitochondria, which give cells energy.
7: It certainly is very encouraging that we can reduce inflammation, which might help someone to recover faster and get on to their next training bout. And we know from many studies that endurance exercise and having greater mitochondrial capacity is a good thing and can uh, reduce the incidence of diabetes, obesity, can improve muscle function in older adults. So I think anything that enhances mitochondrial function is likely to have significant clinical benefits.
9: And the work is published this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Mira Senthalingam there, and if you'd like to follow up on those
3: or any of the news stories we've covered this week, the stories and references are available at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news.
2: Thank you very much, Sarah. Now, a new study into the top conservation issues facing the world gives an insight into the environmental problems that we may be reporting on in the coming years. Compiled by an international team of experts, its concerns include mining in the deep sea for rare earth elements and invasive species in Antarctic waters, as well as new technologies including the rapid development of graphene. Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham went to the University of Cambridge to speak to the leader of the research, Bill Sutherland. We see our role as identifying
10: issues that we think warrant greater research and then feeding that research into the policy process so that policymakers can be more formed and make better decisions when they need to do so. Well,
0: let's look at the the list here that I've got in front of me. I won't run through all 15 issues, but there's Certainly a key theme with, with the first four, all really marine conservation. You talk about warming of the deep sea, mining in the deep ocean, methane venting from the ocean floor and climate driven colonizations in Antarctic waters, by which you mean invasive species really moving into these, these
10: pristine Antarctic territories. Uh, absolutely and I noticed that theme too and I think partly it's because there's some serious marine problems but also the technology is improving so we're learning a lot more about marine habitats and we're beginning to identify some of the serious up and coming threats.
0: Now one of the other issues I was quite taken with on, on this list was graphene. Now this year the UK government has put £50 million pounds into graphene research. There have been Nobel Prize winners for for graphene research. It's seen as the next big technological thing.
10: Absolutely and nanotechnology is clearly an enormous area and there are lots of exciting possibilities including lots of exciting environmental possibilities including graphene. As a material it has all sorts of exciting properties that can be of great benefit. What we do is we say that we really want to then look at what the consequences of that might be and just make sure that there aren't any unforeseen environmental consequences, bearing in mind there's likely to be such a huge change with the development of nanotechnology.
0: Is that what a lot of this is about, seeing a new technology and saying, well, what are the implications of that for the environment?
10: Very often. And I think often as environmental scientists, we've not been very good at that. I think for the GM debate, we didn't actually have the science in place when the major decisions had to be made. So we want to look ahead and make sure we've got the science in place for new technologies and for other issues as well, so that we can foresee what the debate might be and make sure the debate is better informed. The other one on the
0: list, I didn't even know what these were, uh, nuclear batteries. What is a nuclear battery and why are you worried about it?
10: Nuclear battery is a new way of generating energy, and you can do it very much on a small scale. And that means that you can then have energy sources in new areas, and that has benefits for environmental monitoring. It also means that you can create development in areas that would otherwise be impossible. And we're interested in identifying any sort of major environmental disruption, any environmental change that might change the way the world looks. And it was thought that that might be one of these sorts of features.
0: I suppose, just off the top of my head, the obvious problem with a a nuclear battery is what happens when
10: someone throws it away. Absolutely, that is a major problem, and they're much less polluting than nuclear power stations, but obviously they have serious issues related to the waste. They also by providing easy sources of energy, if they are widely developed, will result probably in different patterns of development, and we're interested in then predicting what the consequences of those might be.
0: Now, just a few metres away from your office is the Zoological Museum here in Cambridge, and it's quite sobering walking around to see the number of extinct birds on display, fossils as a giant sloth. Is that something that keeps you going, saying, we don't want another one of those?
10: Absolutely. We're committed in Cambridge to developing conservation and making conservation more related to policymakers with the hope that we can then reduce the likelihood of future extinctions. That's clearly extremely important and we're deeply committed to it.
0: This is the third year you've done it. Can you look back and say, well, we
10: identified that or can you look at any successes? The one we like most but I think it's probably a complete coincidence is in the first one we did we identified the issue of high latitude volcanism and particularly what would happen if Icelandic volcanoes went off and then uh, a couple of months later that happened. I've been accused of trying to set it off. I think that's just fortuitous uh, but a number of the other issues have very much come up the agenda since. So fracking, we identified fracking in our meeting two years ago, The the issue of generating gas by pumping water into rocks and that's now a
2: major environmental concern. Bill Sutherland, leader of the latest study into the top 15 conservation issues facing the world and he was talking to Richard Hollingham. You can find more Planet Earth resources by joining us online at thenakedscientist.com slash planet earth. Keeping you
1: abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists.
2: This is The Naked Scientists, and this week we've been looking at the science of obesity. We'll get back to this week's show topic in just a minute, but first, Sarah, you've produced a science scrapbook video that actually fits quite well with the theme of eating and cooking.
3: Yes, I've been exploring the physics of electromagnetic radiation uh, to find out how a microwave oven works. For example, Ben, did you know that a melty chocolate bar and a few popcorn kernels actually played a key role in the invention of the microwave?
2: I didn't know. I know that melty chocolate bars and microwaves can let you measure the speed of light, which is something we did in kitchen science a while ago. But popcorn doesn't seem like the sort of thing you'd use to invent something.
3: No, well Percy Spencer who uh this American guy who discovered what microwaves could do uh he was working on this magnetron which was originally supposed to be used to produce radar microwaves radar and he sort of was standing next to it and he had a chocolate bar in his pocket and it sort of started to melt and he thought oh that's quite interesting I wonder what happens if i put some popcorn next to this magnetron and all the popcorn just started popping so uh yeah if you want to find out more about that check out the video online now at thenakedscientist.com forward slash scrapbook
2: fantastic thank you very much sarah One of the well-known consequences of being overweight, especially for long term, is an increased risk of developing diabetes. This leaves patients unable to control their own blood glucose level and causes serious complications including kidney failure and loss of sight. Synthetic chemists like Bristol University's Charles Rennie are leading the charge to find useful new molecules.
11: The World Health Organization has estimated that 346 million people worldwide are currently suffering from diabetes, so It's a massive demand for bringing new medicines, new treatments to the market to help, help these people. So one of the main focuses of our research at the moment is can we find a way in which we can offer continuous glucose monitoring, so a way of continuously monitoring sugar levels within diabetic patients. At the
2: moment, diabetics tend to monitor their own blood glucose level by
11: a very old method of pricking their finger and sampling the blood. What's wrong with that technique? One of the main problems is that it relies on the patient themselves having to uh, determine when they should measure their glucose levels and they may forget at one point or they may be busy and not do it at the necessary time and therefore they don't have an accurate reading of what their sugar levels are all the time and this can obviously have quite serious effects. It can obviously lead to them um, having quite high glucose levels when they they feel that they they don't have. So they only monitor their blood glucose level when they remember they then
2: take an appropriate amount of insulin that might mean that they are over medicating themselves or medicating too often or or in fact not medicating enough so what we need is
11: a method where we have a
2: constant idea of how much medication you need and we always give exactly the right amount of medication
11: yeah i feel that that's obviously the goal and where we'd like to be with the treatment of diabetes and currently there are systems which do offer continuous glucose monitoring However, there's quite a few problems with these kind of systems. Many of them are enzyme-based and therefore have quite a, quite a limited lifetime. They normally have a lifetime up to about three days, so they can be implanted, then have to be removed after three days. So therefore, this is obviously not taken widespread use, as it's quite, quite an awkward thing for the patient in order to have this keep implant and then keep removed. They also tend to measure sugar levels from interstitial fluid, which is the uh, fluid which surrounds cells in the body and therefore they're not in direct contact with the bloodstream. So there seems to be a lag between the actual glucose levels in the blood and the, the readout you normally get from these devices. So obviously there's still quite a few improvements that can be uh, achieved with this, and this is probably where, where our research comes in. We've kind of looked to can we make ways in which continuous glucose monitors can be used 24-7 for prolonged periods of time and you know, offer a really accurate readout of glucose levels for diabetic patients and therefore improve the treatment and management of the disease. There's obviously a lot of challenges in getting that right. What's the approach that you're taking? The approach we're taking at the moment is kind of like, can we really focus on trying to bind glucose now initially? Can we find a system which selectively binds glucose from an aqueous media such as water? So therefore, we're looking to kind of take it right back and design molecules initially based on molecular modelling, matching up the different parts of the sugar molecule to a receptor, kind of in a cage structure around that and then kind of using chemical synthesis in order to put this molecule together in order to give a, a highly selective molecule for binding of sugars. And also we'd like a compound which would uh, give a, an output upon binding, such as a change in optical properties or a changing voltage or something, uh, which we then could relate back to, say, how much sugar was bound at any particular moment. So you're looking
2: at the molecular structure,
11: both of the
2: glucose, the thing you want to bind, and then of of candidate molecules that would lock very tightly to that glucose and then give you some kind of readout. So what are the sorts of candidates you're looking at?
11: The kind of candidates we're looking at are quite rigid structures. We want them to be positioned quite neatly and compactly around the sugar molecule. Candidate molecules also have to have a certain amount of water solubility. So they have to have groups on them which will make them go into water. Obviously, you want, this is the medium which we want to operate in. We also want them to kind of have the best match-up to the functionality of a, on, a, on the glucose, on the sugar molecule. So we're kind of making them dual characteristics, so kind of dual properties in which certain parts of the molecules will interact with certain parts of the sugar molecule, and then the other parts will interact with the other parts of the sugar molecule to kind of give a more closely knit binding And how is it going so far? Do you have a range of molecules that you're currently testing? Currently, we've managed to synthesize a couple of molecules which offer selective glucose binding from an aqueous medium. They seem to be stable in blood plasma. So currently, we have quite a good starting point. However, there's a few problems surrounding some of these. The synthesis of these molecules are kind of long-winded with quite a lot of steps. So obviously, it's going to cost a lot of money in the long term and obviously takes a lot of time we'd like to reduce the number of steps in order to make these compounds. And also the um, changing properties, which I alluded to earlier, don't seem to be as strongly and clear-cut as we'd quite like at the moment. So we'd like, obviously, a more distinct change upon binding of the sugar. So therefore there's quite a bit of work surrounding tuning these properties in order to get a better readout of how much sugar will be bound. Obviously, if this is something that the ultimate aim is to put it inside somebody, we also need
2: to be very careful that it isn't going to react to biological tissue. And of course, it's not going to provoke an immune response.
11: Yeah. Initially, we would just like to find a system which will bind sugar. But um, in the long term, if we do find a system which seems to be adequate in doing this, then we'd then do a full range of screens and tests on this compound in order to determine its biological activity, stability and toxicity. We'd also look to consider how it'd be best to uh, administer this kind of compound into the body. Would it be best to have it... Uh, localized in a, in a certain place in, a, in an implant, or would it be best to kind of inject it into the system? We're thinking at the moment an implant would be the best situation, as we can implant it in direct contact with the blood flow, hopefully, in order to get an accurate readout of glucose levels, but also to kind of prevent the compound from moving around the body and interfering with other areas. So once you have found your perfect compound that's biologically compatible, it locks in very
2: specifically to glucose, and then gives you a very distinct. Change in properties. What do you then see as doing with that readout?
11: Ideally, we'd like a system which the change in properties would be able to be detected externally by wearing something such as a watch. So then you could get a readout on the watch of your glucose levels any point you want. You could look at it, have like an alarm system that tells you when it's going high. But also, we'd like we envisage connecting our system up to something which currently exists, such as an insulin pump, which would then inject insulin appropriate amounts of insulin into the patient, then be set up a system of almost like an artificial pancreas. And that'd be a very strong way of treating diabetes and managing the current disease.
2: That was Charlie Rennie from Bristol University.
3: This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and me, Sarah Costa perry We're joined by Professor Marion Hetherington from the University of Leeds and Susie Swithers from Purdue University. Susie, I've got a question for you from Andrew Reitemeyer on Facebook. Uh, he says that he's read that the digestive system monitors food for the presence of certain nutrients and will encourage the brain to desire food until the need is met. Is it a question that we
5: crave certain foods that contain certain nutrients? There's certainly some evidence that if you induce uh, states of significant deficit, that um, animals will show preferences for foods that contain those. But in terms of um, whether, you know, in a relatively healthy um, population, whether we actually show specific cravings for for nutrients, that's a a much tougher question to, to find evidence for.
2: Marion, if I could bring you into this, uh, think about the foods that people crave. There must be some sort of developmental links in that, that we crave things that we're familiar with and not necessarily nutrition that we need, but food that we like.
4: Well certainly the evidence from psychology suggests that food cravings are very common and they're very rarely as Susie says associated with a particular deficit. Lots of research has shown that food cravings are common in in, uh, men and women and they tend to be for foods that are are very um, popular like chocolate and confectionery although men tend to crave things that are salty and savoury. So yeah cravings are to do with familiarity and what you've learned to like under certain circumstances and certainly in dieters it's seems that the cravings can be stronger for foods that uh, people are trying to avoid. So as a psychologist I'm very interested in food cravings because they quite often point to foods that are desirable because we're meant to limit them, because they're tempting and because we're trying to restrict them um, when we're dieting. So chocolate for example is a very commonly craved food and it's not about any kind of uh, nutrient deficiency and this is really nicely demonstrated by data from Paul Rosen and Paul Rosen. Gave gave people who craved chocolate a box. And he said, whatever's in the box, have this when you're craving chocolate. And in the box, it was either empty or it had um, capsules containing cocoa powder or white chocolate or uh, milk chocolate and white chocolate remember has no cocoa it has just cocoa butter it doesn't have any bioactive ingredients and what they found was that cravings could be reduced in chocolate cravers by white chocolate and by milk chocolate so it wasn't that the cravings were were really directed towards any kind of nutrient or any kind of um, physiological um, deficit but rather because of the comfort of eating something that was really delicious milk in the mouth sugar and fat absolutely delicious That's that's where cravings come from
2: fantastic well that's Marian Hetherington she's from the University of Leeds we were also joined by Susie Swithers from Purdue University and now it's time for our question of the week with Hannah Critchlow
1: the Naked Scientist's question of the week brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation supporting science and education from alpha to omega
12: This week, a youthful-sounding Kevin from California asks, How much of us is the us that we are born with?
7: Hello, Naked Scientists. I'm 57 years old. I was looking at a baby picture of myself, and I wondered how much of that me is still left in the current me. Do I have any original parts? In other words, how much of the baby that was born in 1954 is still a part of me, a part, of course, from my cherubic looks? Have I hung on to any of the 18-year-old that I once was? What would be the purpose of all this tissue replacement and what processes manage it?
12: We spoke to Kirsty Spalding, regeneration
13: expert at the Karolinska Institute, Sweden. So for starters in the brain, uh, most of the nerve cells that you're born with will be the ones that you have when you're older, although we do continue to lose nerve cells as we age. There's uh, very little areas in the brain that actually make new nerve cells in adulthood. Also, the lens capsule in the eye, this is also not turning over at all. So the the lens capsule will be as old as you are. And with teeth, once we have our mature teeth, the enamel that's laid down in these teeth, this does not turn over at all. Other organs in the body, I mean, they have much more dynamic turnover. An example of this is fat. We replace 50% of our fat cells per year. Other tissues, such as muscle, by the end of a relatively healthy lifespan of about 75 years, less than half of the muscle cells in the heart will have turned over. Bone is a rather complex structure, and in the middle it has the bone marrow, which is making the white and the red blood cells, and here this is a highly proliferative area, such that millions of cells are being born per second. So as you can see, there's quite a range in contrast of turnover rates of all the different cell types in the body. And with regards to your question on what happens to this shed tissue... Well, sometimes uh, cells are broken down into their components and recycled, or if they're toxic, they can be packaged up for removal or for further processing, or they can be used up in the form of energy.
12: This question generated a lot of online turnover amongst you. Eva Anson via Facebook added it's not just the brain, teeth enamel and eye lens that remain much the same since birth. Premenopausal women also still have some of the egg cells they had at birth, but that doesn't apply to 57-year-old men, I'm afraid. Imartful and Cheryl agreed on the forum, adding that since every egg that a woman will ever produce is already formed when she herself is still in the womb, then a woman pregnant with a daughter is not only carrying and nurturing the next generation, but also the physical beginnings and genetic inheritance of her grandchildren. With that regeneration issue resolved, we turn our baby born eye lenses to gaze into space and ponder this question.
2: This is Bjorn Feller from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm an engineer by profession, but I have started some uh, hobby-scale beer brewing. I wonder, what happens if you brew beer in zero-G? So
12: is it possible to brew up a booze cruise in outer space? Send your thoughts on this quandary to chris at com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, or join in the debate on our forum,
2: which is at com slash forum. That was Hannah Critchlow with our question of the week. And that's unfortunately all we have time for in this week's show. We hope that we haven't left you with a craving for gooey, melt-in-the-mouth comforting chocolate, or based on question of the week, a craving for space beer. But next week we'll explore interesting technologies that allow us to make electricity directly from heat. These are the thermoelectric generators, or TEGS, and we'll be finding out how they can claim back waste power from traditional power plants, and keep space missions running with no need for batteries or solar panels if there's anything you want to know then do get in touch you can email your questions to chris at tweet at naked scientists or post them to our facebook wall thanks to Marion hetherington susie swithers and charlie rennie and to our production team of tom simpkins mira senthalingam and hannah critchlow until next week thanks and goodbye